Chapter 7, Section 3 of The Promise of American Life by Herbert Crowley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by The Progressing America Project. Chapter 7, Section 3 Constructive Discrimination. Assuming then that a democracy cannot avoid the constant assertion of national responsibility for the national welfare, an all-important question remains as to the way in which, and the purpose for which, this interference should be exercised. Should it be exercised on behalf of individual liberty? Should it be exercised on behalf of social equality? Is there any way in which it can be exercised on behalf both of liberty and equality? Hamilton and the constitutional liberals asserted that the state should interfere exclusively on behalf of individual liberty, but Hamilton was no Democrat and was not outlining the policy of a democratic state. In point of fact, democracies have never been satisfied with a definition of democratic policy in terms of liberty. Not only have the particular friends of liberty usually been hostile to democracy, but democracies both in idea and behavior have frequently been hostile to liberty, and they have been justified in distrusting a political regime, organized wholly or even chiefly for its benefit. La liberté, says Mr. Emile Faguet in the preface to his Politique et Moraliste du XIXe siècle, la liberté s'oppose à l'égalité, car la liberté est aristocratique par essence. La liberté ne se donne jamais, ne s'octroie jamais, elle se conquiert. Or, ne peuvent la conquérir que des groupes sociaux qui ont su se donner la cohérence, l'organisation et la discipline, et qui par conséquent sont des groupes aristocratiques. The fact that states organized exclusively or largely for the benefit of liberty are essentially aristocratic explains the hostile and suspicious attitude of democracies towards such a principle of political action. Only a comparatively small minority are capable at any one time of exercising political, economic, and civil liberties in an able, efficient, or thoroughly worthy manner. And a regime wrought for the benefit of such a minority would become at best a state in which economic, political, and social power would be very unevenly distributed, a state like the Orleans monarchy in France of the bourgeoisie and the intellectuals. Such a state might well give its citizens fairly good government, as did the Orleans monarchy. But just in so far as the mass of the people had any will of its own, it could not arouse vital popular interest and support, and it could not contribute, except negatively, to the fund of popular good sense and experience. The lack of such popular support caused the death of the French liberal monarchy, and no such regime can endure, save, as in England, by virtue of a somewhat abject popular acquiescence. As long as it does endure, moreover, it tends to undermine the virtue of its own beneficiaries. The favored minority, feeling as they do tolerably sure of their position, can scarcely avoid a habit of making it somewhat too easy for one another. The political, economic, and intellectual leaders begin to be selected without any sufficient test of their efficiency. Some sort of a test continues to be required, but the standards which determine it drift into a condition of being narrow, artificial, and lax. Political, intellectual, and social leadership, in order to preserve its vitality needs a feeling of effective responsibility to a body of public opinion as wide, as varied, and as exacting as that of the whole community. The desirable democratic object, implied in the traditional democratic demand for equality, 
consists precisely in that of bestowing a share of the responsibility and the benefits derived from political and economic association upon the whole community democracies have assumed and have been right in assuming that a proper diffusion of effective responsibility and substantial benefits is the one means whereby a community can be supplied with an ultimate and sufficient bond of union the american democracy has attempted to manufacture a sufficient bond out of the equalization of rights but such a bond is as we have seen either a rope of sand or a link of chains a similar object must be achieved in some other way and the ultimate success of democracy depends upon its achievement the fundamental political and social problem of a democracy may be summarized in the following terms a democracy like every political and social group is composed of individuals and must be organized for the benefit of its constituent members but the individual has no chance of effective personal power except by means of the secure exercise of certain personal rights such rights then must be secured and exercised yet when they are exercised their tendency is to divide the community into divergent classes even if enjoyed with some equality in the beginning they do not continue to be equally enjoyed but make towards discriminations advantageous to a minority the state as representing the common interest is obliged to admit the inevitability of such classifications and divisions and has itself no alternative but to exercise a decisive preference on behalf of one side or the other a well-governed state will use its power to promote edifying and desirable discriminations but if discriminations tend to divide the community and the state itself cannot do more than select among the various possible cases of discrimination those which it has some reason to prefer how is the solidarity of the community to be preserved and above all how is a democratic community which necessarily includes everybody in its benefits and responsibilities to be kept well united such a community must retain an ultimate bond of union which counteracts the divergent effect of the discriminations yet which at the same time is not fundamentally hostile to individual liberties the clue to the best available solution of the problem is supplied by a consideration of the precise manner in which the advantages derived from the efficient exercise of liberties become inimical to a wholesome social condition the hostility depends not upon the existence of such advantageous discriminations for a time but upon their persistence for too long a time when either from natural or artificial causes they are properly selected they contribute at the time of their selection both to individual and to social efficiency they have been earned and it is both just and edifying that in so far as they have been earned they should be freely enjoyed on the other hand they should not so far as possible be allowed to outlast their own utility they must continue to be earned it is power and opportunity enjoyed without being earned which help to damage the individual both the individuals who benefit and the individuals who consent and which tend to loosen the ultimate social bond a democracy no less than a monarchy or an aristocracy must recognize political economic and social discriminations but it must also manage to withdraw its consent whenever these discriminations show any tendency to excessive endurance the essential wholeness of the community depends absolutely on the ceaseless creation of a political economic and social aristocracy and their equally incessant replacement 
both in its organization and in its policy a democratic state has consequently to seek two different but supplementary objects it is the function of such a state to represent the whole community and the whole community includes the individual as well as the mass the many as well as the few the individual is merged in the mass unless he is enabled to exercise efficiently and independently his own private and special purposes he must not only be permitted he must be encouraged to earn distinction and the best way in which he can be encouraged to earn distinction is to reward distinction both by abundant opportunity and cordial appreciation individual distinction resulting from efficient performance of special work is not only the foundation of all genuine individuality but is usually of the utmost social value in so far as it is efficient it has a tendency to be constructive it both inserts some member into the social edifice which forms for the time being a desirable part of the whole structure but it tends to establish a standard of achievement which may well form a permanent contribution to social amelioration it is useful to the whole community and not because it is derived from popular sources or conforms to popular standards but because it is formative but because it is formative and so helps to convert the community into a well-formed whole distinction however even when it is earned always has a tendency to remain satisfied with its achievements and to seek indefinitely its own perpetuation when such a course is pursued by an efficient and distinguished individual he is of course faithless to the meaning and the source of his own individual power in abandoning and replacing him a democracy is not recreant to the principle of individual liberty it is merely subjecting individual liberty to conditions which promote and determine its continued efficiency such conditions never have been and never will be imposed for long by individuals or classes of individuals upon themselves they must be imposed by the community and nothing less than the whole community the efficient exercise of individual power is necessary to form a community and to make it whole but the duty of keeping it whole rests with the community itself it must consciously and resolutely preserve the social benefit derived from the achievements of its favorite sons and the most efficient means thereto is that of denying to favoritism of all kinds the opportunity of becoming a mere habit the specific means whereby this necessary and formative favoritism can be prevented from becoming a mere habit vary radically among the different fields of personal activity in the fields of intellectual work the conditions imposed upon the individual must for the most part be the creation of public opinion and in its proper place this aspect of the relation between individuality and democracy will receive special consideration in the present connection however the relation of individual liberty to democratic organization and policy can be illustrated and explained most helpfully by a consideration of the binding and formative conditions of political and economic liberty democracies have always been chiefly preoccupied with the problems raised by the exercise of political and economic opportunities because success in politics and business implies the control of a great deal of physical power and the consequent possession by the victors in a peculiar degree of both the motive and the means to perpetuate their victory the particular friends of freedom such as hamilton and the french doctrinaires have always believed that both civil and political liberty depended on the denial of popular sovereignty and the rigid limitation of the suffrage 
of course a democrat cannot accept such a conclusion he should doubtless admit that the possession of absolute sovereign power is always liable to abuse and if he is candid he can hardly fail to add that democratic favoritism is subject to the same weakness as aristocratic or royal favoritism it tends that is to make individuals seek distinction not by high individual efficiency but by compromises in the interest of useful popularity it would be vain to deny the gravity of this danger or the extent to which in the best of democracies the seekers after all kinds of distinction have been hypnotized by an express desire for popularity but american statesmen have not always been obliged to choose between hamilton's unpopular integrity and henry clay's unprincipled bidding for popular favor the greatest american political leaders have been popular without any personal capitulation and their success is indicative of what is theoretically the most wholesome relation between individual political liberty and a democratic distribution of effective political power the highest and most profitable individual political distinction is that which is won from a large field and from a whole people political even more than other kinds of distinction should not be the fruit of a limited area of selection it must be open to everybody and it must be acceptable to the community as a whole in fact the concession of substantially equal political rights is an absolute condition of any fundamental political bond grave as are the dangers which a democratic political system incurs still graver ones are incurred by a rigidly limited electoral organization a community so organized betrays a fundamental lack of confidence in the mutual loyalty and good faith of its members and such a community can remain well united only at the cost of a mixture of patronage and servility the limitation of the suffrage to those who are individually capable of making the best use of it has the appearance of being reasonable and it has made a strong appeal to those statesmen and thinkers who believed in the political leadership of intelligent and educated men neither can it be denied that a rigidly restricted suffrage might well make in the beginning for administrative efficiency and good government but it must never be forgotten that a limited suffrage confines ultimate political responsibility not only to a number of peculiarly competent individuals but to a larger or smaller class and in the long run a class is never to be trusted to govern in the interest of the whole community a democracy should encourage the political leadership of experienced educated and well-trained men but only on the express condition that their power is delegated and is to be used under severe penalties for the benefit of the people as a whole a limited suffrage secures governmental efficiency if at all at the expense of the political education and training of the disenfranchised class and at the expense also of a permanent and radical popular political grievance a substantially universal suffrage merely places the ultimate political responsibility in the hands of those for whose benefit governments are created and its denial can be justified only on the ground that the whole community is incapable of exercising the responsibility such cases unquestionably exist they exist wherever individuals constituting a community as at present in the south are more divided by social or class ambitions and prejudices than they are united by a tradition of common action and mutual loyalty but wherever the whole people are capable of thinking feeling and acting as if they constituted a whole universal suffrage even if it costs something in temporary efficiency has a tendency to be more salutary and more formative than a restricted suffrage
the substantially equal political rights enjoyed by the American people for so many generations, have not proved dangerous to the civil liberties of the individual and, except to a limited extent, not to his political liberty. Of course, the American democracy has been absolutely opposed to the delegation to individuals of official political power, except under rigid conditions both as to scope and duration, and the particular friends of liberty have always claimed that such rigid conditions destroyed individual political independence and freedom. Hamilton, for instance, was insistent upon the necessity of an upper house, consisting of life members who would not be dependent on popular favor for their retention of office. But such proposals have no chance of prevailing in a sensible democracy. A democracy is justified in refusing to bestow certain A democracy is justified in refusing to bestow permanent political power upon individuals, because such permanent tenure of office relaxes oftener than it stimulates the efficiency of the favored individual, and makes him attach excessive importance to mere independence. The official leaders of a democracy should, indeed, hold their offices under conditions which will enable them to act and think independently, but independence is really valuable only when the office holder has won it from his own followers. Under any other conditions it is not only peculiarly liable to abuse, but it deprives the whole people of that ultimate responsibility for their own welfare, without which democracy is meaningless. A democracy is or should be constantly delegating an effective share in this responsibility to its official leaders, but only on condition that the power and responsibility delegated is partial and is periodically resumed. The only Americans who hold important official positions for life are the judges of the federal courts. Radical Democrats have always protested against this exception, which, nevertheless, can be permitted without any infringement of democratic principles. The peculiar position of the federal judge is symptomatic of the peculiar importance in the American system of the federal constitution. A senator would be less likely to be an efficient and public-spirited legislator in case he were not obliged at regular intervals to perform title to his distinction. A justice of the Supreme Court, on the other hand, can the better perform his special task, provided he has a firm and permanent hold upon his office. He cannot, to be sure, entirely escape responsibility to public opinion, but his primary duty is to expound the Constitution as he understands it, and it is a duty which demands the utmost personal independence. The fault with the American system in this respect consists not in the independence of the federal judiciary, but in the practical immutability of the Constitution. If the instrument which the Supreme Court expounds could be altered whenever a sufficiently large body of public opinion has demanded a change for a sufficiently long time, the American democracy would have much more to gain than to fear from the independence of the federal judiciary. The interest of individual liberty in relation to the organization of democracy demands simply that the individual officeholder should possess an amount of power and independence adequate to the efficient performance of his work. The work of a justice of the Supreme Court demands a power that is absolute for its own special work, and it demands technically complete independence. An executive should, as a rule, serve for a longer term, and hold a position of greater independence than a legislator, because his work of enforcing the laws and attending to the business details of government demands continuity, complete responsibility within its own sphere and the necessity occasionally of braving adverse currents of public opinion. 
the term of service and the technical independence of a legislator might well be more restricted than that of an executive but even a legislator should be granted as much power and independence as he may need for the official performance of his public duty the american democracy has shown its enmity to individual political liberty not because it has required its political favorites constantly to seek re-election but because it has since eighteen hundred tended to refuse to its favorites during their official term tended to refuse to its favorites during their official term as much power and independence as is needed for administrative legislative and judicial efficiency it has been jealous of the power it delegated and it has tried to take away with one hand what it gave with the other taking american political traditions ideals institutions and practices as a whole there is no reason to believe that the american democracy cannot and will not combine sufficient opportunities for individual political distinction with an effective ultimate popular political responsibility the manner in which the combination has been made hitherto is far from flawless and the american democracy has much to learn before it reaches an organization adequate to its own proper purposes it must learn above all that the state and the individuals who are temporarily responsible for the action of the state must be granted all the power necessary to redeem that responsibility individual opportunity and social welfare both depend upon the learning of this lesson and while it is still very far from being learned the obstacles in the way are not of a disheartening nature the federalists refrained from protecting individual political rights by incorporating in the constitution any limitation of the suffrage but they sought to protect the property rights of the individual by the most absolute constitutional guarantees moreover american practice has allowed the individual a far larger measure of economic liberty than is required by the constitution and this liberty was granted in the expectation that it would benefit not the individual as such but the great mass of the american people it has undoubtedly benefited the great mass of the american people but it has been of far more benefit to a comparatively few individuals americans are just beginning to learn that the great freedom which the individual property owner has enjoyed is having the inevitable result of all unrestrained exercise of freedom it has tended to create a powerful but limited class whose chief object is to hold and to increase the power which they have gained and this unexpected result has presented the american democracy with the most difficult and radical of its problems is it to the interest of the american people as a democracy to permit the increase or the perpetuation of the power gained by this aristocracy of money a candid consideration of the foregoing question will i believe result in a negative answer a democracy has as much interest in regulating for its own benefit the distribution of economic power as it has the distribution of political power and the consequences of ignoring this interest would be as fatal in one case as in the other in both instances regulation in the democratic interest is as far as possible from meaning the annihilation of individual liberty but in both instances individual liberty should be subjected to conditions which will continue to keep it efficient and generally serviceable individual economic power is not any more dangerous than individual political power provided it is not held too absolutely and for too long a time but in both cases the interest of the community as a whole should be dominant and the interest of the whole community demands a considerable concentration of economic power and responsibility 
but only for the ultimate purpose of its more efficient exercise and the better distribution of its fruits. That certain existing American fortunes have in their making been of the utmost benefit to the whole economic organism is, in my mind, unquestionably the fact. Men like Mr. J. Pierpont Morgan, Mr. Andrew Carnegie, Mr. James J. Hill, and Mr. Edward Harriman, Mr. James J. Hill, and Mr. Edward Harriman, have in the course of their business careers contributed enormously to American economic efficiency. They have been overpaid for their services, but that is irrelevant to the question immediately under consideration. It is sufficient that their economic power has been just as much earned by substantial service as was the political power of a man like Andrew Jackson, and if our country is to continue its prosperous economic career, it must retain an economic organization which will offer to men of this stamp the opportunity and the inducement to earn distinction. The rule which has already been applied to the case of political power applies, also, to economic power. Individuals should enjoy as much freedom from restraint, as much opportunity, and as much responsibility as is necessary for the efficient performance of their work. Opinions will differ as to the extent of this desirable independence and its associated responsibility. The American millionaire and his supporters claim, of course, that any diminution of opportunity and independence would be fatal. To dispute this inference, however, does not involve the abandonment of the rule itself. To dispute this inference, however, does not involve the abandonment of the rule itself. A democratic economic system, even more than a democratic political system, must delegate a large share of responsibility and power to the individual, but under conditions, if possible, which will really make for individual efficiency and distinction. The grievance which a Democrat may feel towards the existing economic system is that it makes only partially for genuine individual economic efficiency and distinction. The political power enjoyed by an individual American rarely endures long enough to survive its own utility. But economic power can, in some measure at least, be detached from its creator. Let it be admitted that the man who accumulates $50 million in part earns it, but how about the man who inherits it? The inheritor of such a fortune, like the inheritor of a ducal title, has an opportunity thrust upon him. He succeeds to a colossal economic privilege which he has not earned, and for which he may be wholly incompetent. He rarely inherits with the money, the individual ability possessed by its maker, but he does inherit a money power, wholly independent of his own qualifications or deserts. By virtue of that power alone, he is in a position in some measure to exploit his fellow countrymen. Even though a man of very inferior intellectual and moral caliber, he is able vastly to increase his fortune through the information and opportunity which that fortune bestows upon him, and without making any individual contribution to the economic organization of the country. His power brings with it no personal dignity or efficiency, and for the whole material and meaning of his life, he becomes as much dependent upon his millions as a nobleman upon his title. The money which was a source of distinction to its creator becomes in the course of time a source of individual demoralization to its inheritor. His life is organized for the purpose of spending a larger income than any private individual can really need and his intellectual point of view is bounded by his narrow experience and his class interests. No doubt the institution of private property, necessitating, as it does, 
the transmission to one person of the possessions and earnings of another, always involves the inheritance of unearned power and opportunity. But the point is that in the case of very large fortunes, the inherited power goes far beyond any legitimate individual needs, and in the course of time can hardly fail to corrupt its possessors. The creator of a large fortune may well become its master, but its inheritor will, except in the case of exceptionally able individuals, become its victim, and most assuredly the evil social effects are as bad as the evil individual effects. The political bond which a democracy seeks to create depends for its higher value upon an effective social bond. Gross inequalities in wealth, wholly divorced from economic efficiency on the part of the rich, as effectively loosen the social bond as do gross inequalities of political and social standing. A wholesome social condition in a democracy does not imply uniformity of wealth, any more than it implies uniformity of ability and purpose, but it does imply the association of great individual economic distinction with responsibility and efficiency. It does imply that economic leaders, no less than political ones, should have conditions imposed upon them which will force them to recognize the responsibilities attached to so much power. Mutual association and confidence between the leaders and followers is as much a part of democratic economic organization as it is of democratic political organization, and in the long run, the inheritance of vast fortunes destroys any such relation. They breed class envy on one side, and class contempt on the other, and the community is either divided irremediably by differences of interest and outlook, or united, if at all, by snobbish servility. If the integrity of a democracy is injured by the perpetuation of unearned economic distinctions, it is also injured by extreme poverty, whether deserved or not. A democracy which attempted to equalize wealth would incur the same disastrous fate as a democracy which attempted to equalize political power. But a democracy can no more be indifferent to the distribution of wealth than it can be to the distribution of the suffrage. In a wholesome democracy every male should participate in the ultimate political responsibility, partly because of the political danger in refusing participation to the people, and partly because of the advantages to be derived from the political union of the whole people. So a wholesome democracy should seek to guarantee to every male adult a certain minimum of economic power and responsibility. No doubt it is much easier to confer the suffrage on the people than it is to make poverty a negligible social factor, but the difficulty of the task does not make it the less necessary. It stands to reason that in the long run, the people who possess the political power will want a substantial share of the economic fruits. A prudent democracy should anticipate this demand. Not only does any considerable amount of grinding poverty constitute a grave social danger in a democratic state, but so, in general, does a widespread condition of partial economic privation. The individuals constituting a democracy lack the first essential of individual freedom, when they cannot escape from a condition of economic dependence. The American democracy has confidently believed in the fatal prosperity enjoyed by the people under the American system. In the confidence of that belief, it has promised to Americans a substantial satisfaction of their economic needs, and it has made that promise an essential part of the American national idea. The promise has been measurably fulfilled hitherto, because the prodigious natural resources of a new continent were thrown open to anybody with the energy to appropriate them. But those natural resources have now in large measure passed into the possession of individuals, 
and American statesmen can no longer count upon them to satisfy the popular hunger for economic independence. An ever larger proportion of the total population of the country is taking to industrial occupations, and an industrial system brings with it much more definite social and economic classes, and a diminution of the earlier social homogeneity. The contemporary wage earner is no longer satisfied with the economic results of being merely an American citizen. His union is usually of more obvious use to him than the state, and he is tending to make his allegiance to his union paramount to his allegiance to the state. This is only one of many illustrations that the traditional American system has broken down. The American state can regain the loyal adhesion of the economically less independent class only by positive service. What the wage earner needs, and what it is to the interest of a democratic state he should obtain, is a constantly higher standard of living. The state can help him to conquer a higher standard of living without doing any necessary injury to his employers, and with a positive benefit to general economic and social efficiency. If it is to earn the loyalty of the wage earners, it must recognize the legitimacy of his demand, and make the satisfaction of it an essential part of its public policy. The American state is dedicated to such a duty, not only by its democratic purpose, but by its national tradition. So far as the former is concerned, it is absurd and fatal to ask a popular majority to respect the rights of a minority, when those rights are interpreted so as seriously to hamper, if not to forbid, the majority from obtaining the essential condition of individual freedom and development, viz., the highest possible standard of living. But this absurdity becomes really critical and dangerous, in view of the fact that the American people, particularly those of alien birth and descent, have been explicitly promised economic freedom and prosperity. The promise was made on the strength of what was believed to be an inexhaustible store of natural opportunities, and it will have to be kept, even when those natural resources are no longer to be had for the asking. It is entirely possible, of course, that the promise can never be kept, that its redemption will prove to be beyond the patience, the power, and the wisdom of the American people and their leaders. But if it is not kept, the American Commonwealth will no longer continue to be a democracy. End of chapter 7, section 3